This is the Reading Instruction Show. I'm your host, as always, Dr. Andy Johnson. Title of today's podcast is called Three Queuing, Orthographic Mapping, and Ignorance Mapping. But a word up front, a disclaimer. The ideas expressed here are my own. They do not represent Minnesota State University, the Department of Elementary and Literacy Education, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, or the League of Superheroes. They are my own. As well, this is a work of pure fantasy. Any resemblance to people, organizations, or dark forces of evil is purely coincidental. So, zealots. The science of reading zealots in Minnesota and in other states around the country, like Wisconsin and Texas and Ohio, have done uh, something pretty remarkable. It's remarkably bad, but it is remarkable. They have banned words. It is now against the law in Minnesota for me to include, quote, the three killing systems on my syllabi, on my reading assignments, in my reading assignments, or course outlines. Imagine that. A law telling me what I can and cannot say or can or cannot teach in my literacy methods class. A law put together by people who know nothing of literacy instruction or research. A law put together by people who sound out words instead of reading for meeting. A law put together by people who look at every letter when they read. A law put together by people who ignore syntax and semantics when they read. A law that says, I must ignore my three decades of research, scholarly work, and teaching experience. A law that states I must ignore what a body of research from a variety of different fields has determined to be an empirical fact. And that is that we use multiple forms of information to recognize words while creating meaning with print. And according to this brand spanking new law in Minnesota, I must lie to my students in my literacy methods courses here at Minnesota State University. It's a law. It's right there on page 52. It says, literacy professors must lie to students in literacy methods courses. That's because they don't want me exposing young, impressionable minds to this very dangerous terms that they don't understand. It's dangerous, so I won't use the term. I'm a good public employee. Instead, I'll call it the term which shall not be named. It's either that or risk being arrested by the Minnesota Reading Police. They'll break down my classroom and drag me away in handcuffs but it is a holy inquisition. Here in Minnesota, inquisitors from the Education Standards Board, part of the Department of Education, go through syllabi line by line with magnifying glasses looking for offending terms. And I wish I were exaggerating here, but I'm not. 
And if an offended term is found on our syllabi, our programs won't be accredited. Hearsay, they cry. Imagine that. The three queuing systems, hearsay and blasphemy and wickedness, the inquisitors shout angrily. And if I am founded, found to have committed such heresy, if these words appear on my syllabi, the teaching preparation programs at our university risk accreditation. And this means our graduates won't be able to get their teaching license. Imagine that. So the science of reading zealots are bullying their way into compliance. If you can't win an argument in an academic setting, what do you do? If you're a zealot, you bully and you threaten. Meaning-based educators have won the argument long time ago. The case for balanced literacy instruction broaches little dissent among literacy experts. Literacy experts, not clowns. Now, an Educational Standards Board inquisitor recently suggested to our department chair that one of our programs at our university might not get accredited because they had heard a podcast I made in which I used the term clown to refer to those who think they know more about reading than they do. Uh, maybe he shouldn't refer to us as clowns, they said. I'd hate to have something bad happen to your program. Imagine that. Now, on the one hand, I am flattered that they're listening. But on the other hand, it's a very sad commentary about the state of academia and education in Minnesota. A very sad statement. Because in an academic environment, rigorous academic discourse, supported by reason and research, are used to make a case. And disagreement and discussion are seen as healthy and necessary components of academic life. It enables the evolution of our thinking and the continued evolution of our field. And peer-reviewed research is the currency used in an academic economy. Not bullying, not silencing, not emotion. Peer-reviewed research is the currency used in an academic economy. But if you have no currency, you do what the science of reading zealots have done. You get large organizations to persuade legislative toadies, toadies who know nothing about reading instruction, you get them to pass restrictive laws. Then you bully and you threaten and you intimidate and you punish. And in this Trumpian age, these have all become accept acceptable tools. And like zealots everywhere, science of reading zealots have no shame. The ends justify their inquisition-based means. And zealots will brook no dissent. All must believe as one. All must follow Emily Hanford, the great leader in opposing the great Satan, Ken Goodman. Now, I and many others have provided bountiful amounts of research-based evidence 
supporting the existence of the three queuing systems and the effectiveness of balanced literacy instruction and the research supporting meaning-based approaches to reading. But it doesn't matter. In their zealotry, they've become data-resistant. Their cognitive systems have built up reason-based antibodies, making them immune to reason and research. The result is that the science of reading zealots continued to insist that this term, these three words, the three queuing systems, be banned. But they don't know what they don't know. It's obvious that the science of reading zealots don't know what the three queuing systems is. And yet, they've banned it. It's the law. It's censored. It shall not appear. So I'm going to try to debunk their bit of debunkery in a series of podcasts. I'm going to explain the three queuing systems for the 187th time, and I want to focus on orthographic mapping a little bit here. But first of all, it is not a strategy. The three queuing systems is not a strategy. And I don't know how this could be said any more clearly, so instead I'll say it more slowly. The three queuing systems is not a skill or strategy. You don't teach it. And now I'll repeat it. The three queuing systems is not a skill or strategy. It's not something you teach. And now I'll say it a little bit louder. The three queuing systems is not a strategy. It's not something that you teach. And now I'll say it a couple different ways. It's not a method. It's not an approach. It's not a tool of Satan. It's not an insidious communist plot to overthrow capitalism and the free market. A strategy it is not. Not to teach is what you do because it is not something you teach. And now I'll tell you what it is. The three queuing systems is simply a recognition that our brain uses lots of different sources of information to recognize words when we are creating meaning with print. And that's what reading is. Not sounding out words, but creating meaning with print. And despite all the research studies and things I've cited, the science of reading zealots insists that we just use letters. We just use letters and we look at every single letter. So now I'll do a little bit more explaining. Our brain consists of a series of neural networks that work interactively during the reading process. In other words, there are interacting and interdependent systems all communicating across neural networks. And these work together to provide information about words and sentences and meaning during the reading process. And this, my friends, is an empirical fact. Empirical means that it can be measured or observed. 
And I know the question that you're asking yourself right now. How do I know? Did I read a study? Did I read a book? Did I listen to a famous person say something? Did I listen to a radio journalist? Did I hear a podcast? Did I read it in a newspaper? Did the Moms for Liberty tell me? Heaven forbid. I did not read it in a box. I did not read it with a fox. I did not hear it from a goat. I did not hear it on a boat. So how did I come to know such a thing as the three queuing systems? Let me explain. Once the light rays traveled from the light source onto the page, my eyes perceived the little squiggles. Signals then were sent to the thalamus, thalamus and then up to the cortex. And these electrical signals were converted into meaningful bits of information. That is, the electrical data converted to letters and words, and the letters and words were connected to concepts. And there's not a single area in our brains used to read, as Sally Shaywitz would have you believe. Instead, our brains use interacting systems to convert the light rays, the squiggles, and electrical impulses into meaningful stuff. That is to make sense of it all. That's what human brains do. They're hardwired to make sense of stuff. To make sense out of nonsense. And in this sense-making process, Interacting neurocognitive systems are used to recognize words on the page. They provide the brain with information. They cue the brain as to what the next word might be before the eyes actually get to the word. And this enables our brain to operate more efficiently. In any situation, including reading, our brains are always using a variety of sources and information to make sense of what is and to predict what might be. This again is something the human brain has evolved to do, to make sense of data, to look for patterns, and to use these patterns to, to predict and make sense of reality in the most efficient way possible. Now to give a couple of very rudimentary examples. Let's say I was in the woods and I had been told that there were bears around. If my brain detected a crashing sound and my eyes saw a black shape moving against the trees, I wouldn't need complete bear data to know there was a bear in the area. I wouldn't need to see the whole bear. My brain would be filling in the blanks, and my fight-or-flight mechanism would immediately kick in and I would respond. To do otherwise would be to be eaten by the bear. Or a common example, if I were to enter a fast food restaurant, I have a schema in my head that tells me what to do and what will happen and what I'm supposed to do. I don't have to relearn this every time based on the bits of data coming in. 
I know I'm to go up to the counter, stand in line, tell the person what I wish to purchase, and stick my little card into a machine, and the imaginary money is taken from my account. I don't have to learn or relearn in every instance. My brain is making predictions based on what's in the head. Our brains are constantly feeding us data in order to perceive things and to make sense of the incoming data picked up by our senses. And the last example, I was thinking I was in for a physical the other day and the doctor was busy thumping and pressing me all the while using the data he had accumulated through decades of study and experience to make sense of the thumping and pressing and to decide if I was healthy or not. And I am. So this thing called orthographic mapping is thrown around quite a bit. Let's start with the idea of orthographic uh, mapping and the rubbish which is letters professional development. Orthographic mapping is all the rage right now. And the term orthographic mapping sounds so very important. Yes, it does. It's a big person word. Look, Mom, I went to college. I know a big person word. And orthographic mapping sounds quasi-academic. And we're supposed to accept it without question, I guess. And I've noticed, by the way, the science of reading zealots tend to throw around a lot of words and terms without fully understanding what they are or what they mean. Understanding never gets in the way of their coming to conclusions about things. So let's do a little unpackerating. Mapping, when conferred to, referred to in a cognitive sense, they're referring to neural pathways and neural networks. And think of a billion dot, dot to dot picture in your head. Each bit of micro information is a dot. Dots that are similar to each other are connected and closer together in these neural networks. And all your information related to a particular concept are in a particular dot to dot picture called a neural network. Now, an orthographic system, orthography, has to do with letters, letter patterns, and arrangements. Our English written language is an orthographic system, meaning that it consists of letter symbols that represent sounds, and it relies on arrangements of these letters to represent sounds that are put together to form words. That's an orthographic system, orthography, letters. A logographic system, other writing systems are logographic. A logo is a symbol. Think of a team logo. A symbol used to represent a thing. It's not a symbol to represent a sound, but a symbol used to represent an idea or a thing. And Chinese characters are examples of a logo, logographic system. The symbols don't stand for sounds, but for things or ideas. An orthographic mapping is based on the idea that words are memorized and stored in long-term memory based on letter patterns. 
it's based on this idea that you can create a cognitive map, a universal cognitive map based on letter patterns that are universally stored in all of human consciousness. And based on this, if letter sounds and patterns are taught in a magical sequence that is aligned with this universal cognitive map, students will be better able to store and retrieve these words during the process of reading. And this is a very interesting theory. Absolutely. And is there data to support it? Absolutely. But there's data to support most theories, including the flat earth theory. And this ranks right up there with the flat earth theory. Theories are neither right nor wrong. Instead, they are robust or weak. Strong theories account for a lot of data and explain a lot of phenomena. Weak theories, such as this whole orthographic mapping thing, leaves much data unaccounted for and are useless in explaining many phenomena. Orthographic mapping is based on a very weak theory. Yes, there's data to support the idea of orthographic mapping, just not a lot of data and not a lot of the right kind of data. So, couple of ideas here. First, if reading were merely recognizing individual words floating in space, this whole orthographic mapping thing might make sense. That is, if reading were merely pattern recognition, then a case could be made for cognitive mapping based on letter patterns and teaching based on cognitive mapping. But here's the thing, Dr. Motes. We never encounter individual words floating in space outside a meaningful context unless we're taking a Dibbles test. Words are always found in some context. It could be the context of a sign, or a product label, or usually a sentence. Both written words and listening words. The context provides just as much information about that word, probably more, than the simple arrangement of letters. But you would have us with this whole cognitive mapping thing, looking, just peering through this little teeny tiny people, looking just at letters. How quaint. And second idea here. Words are not meaningless patterns. Words mean something. There's a semantic element to a word. But if reading were simply recognizing a set of meaningless patterns based on another set of meaningless patterns stored in your head, then maybe, just maybe, orthographic mapping would have some credibility. But that's not the case, is it? So, spreading activation, let's take a look at that. Way back in 1975, Collins and Loftus put forth the idea of spreading activation, spreading activation theory, suggesting that our semantic memory, memory of things and ideas, 
is organized by semantic uh, distance or the relatedness of things. Things are organized in our brain by associations, by how close the related thing is to similar things in our brain. And it's not hierarchies. It's not like a, a structure, an outline, but by association. It's semantic similarities, meaning, and I'll give you an example of this, not orthographic similarities. Things are not stored based on letter patterns, but semantic similarities. And McClellan and Rummelhart in 81 developed this parallel processing model showing that a person can take in and understand and use a lot of different stimuli at the same time. And this means for reading, of course, we're using a lot of different information to create meaning, not just, quote, the code. And what I found most interesting was this study, 1996, by Damasio, found that our brain has three levels of representation for words. At the top level is the conceptual level. That's all the semantic or meaning information about the word. The second level is the lexical level. This is the word form that matches the concept. And the third and the very lowest and the weakest is the phonological level. This is the sound and letter information corresponding to the word. So, this means that the strongest level of word representation in long-term memory, as I said, is not letter patterns, but meaning. So, orthographic mapping may be a thing but semantic mapping is much more of a thing. Orthographic mapping may be a thing, but semantic mapping is much more of a thing. For example, when you hear the word cat, or when you see the word cat in print, you automatically associate it with cat things. Soft, furry, paws, kitty, pet. These are all concepts, semantics, that are closely related to the concept of a cat. The neural pathways leading to these things are activated. They come to mind. What is not activated when you hear or see the word cat? You don't think of short A words, or CVC words, or words with the AT phonograms. You don't think about letter sounds or letter patterns. You think of things, of ideas. Clearly, we have access to semantic information when we see or hear the word cat. Yes, there is orthographic information on the page, and some orthographic mapping is stored in the head, but semantic information, both on the page and in the head, takes precedence over orthographic information. And again, orthographic refers to letter arrangement and spelling. And again, if reading were purely sounding out words, then orthographic mapping might make sense. Now, that's why the science of reading zealots insist 
that we should not include activities to develop these other ways of recognizing words and information. Those that do this are wretchedly misinformed. Science of reading zealots that insist that we not include activities to develop these other ways of recognizing words and other types of information are wretchedly misinformed. Focusing only on decoding will result in better decoding scores on decoding tests, and students will be able to identify a list of nonsense words faster, and they may be, evil, uh, may be able to even decode a list of CBC words faster. Okay, fine. No argument. If you teach something, you'll get better, higher measures of th that something. But is that something anything? Do these things result in students' ability to better create meaning with print? So that brings us to Letters Teacher Professional Development Program based on the concept of orthographic mapping. And Education Week, which is not a non-biased uh, publication, says that Letters is a program, a long, intensive, and expensive program. It can take up to 160 hours to complete over the course of two years, but it's also become one of the most frequently used options for reading professional development. That's what Education Week says, and that is a very sad and scary thing. So what is Letters? Well, according to Letters, Letters is a training program developed by Louisa Motes and Carol Tolman, and they're both described as literacy experts and consultants. Now, if I was just decoding and sounding out words, i go, oh, okay. i take that information from the page and it would go straight up to my head. But I use information in my head to analyze, to develop, and go, WTF? Louisa Motes, literacy expert and consultant. Well, Dr. Motes may be a consultant, but only because people are silly enough to pay her. But a critical reading of research and scholarly work using all three queuing systems, written by the good Dr. Motes, provides plenty of research-based evidence that she is not a literacy expert. Analyze some of what she calls research. Analyze how she misuses and misinterprets research toward her own end. I don't know which is scarier, that she thinks that's an appropriate use of research and valid research, or she knows it's not and she does it anyway. Both are scary propositions, aren't they? All right, it goes on to explain the first part of the course, letters, explains why reading, about why learning to read can be difficult and how the reading brain works. Reading brain. How the reading brain works. Interesting. Now, 2013 analysis of a whole bunch of brain imaging studies by Bishop found that many of these brain imaging studies had serious methodological flaws. And also, interesting, people tend to give credence to studies and articles that use the word brain or refrain or refer to brain images or use brain words. 
And that's a long way of saying that when Dr. Motes talks about the reading brain, she doesn't know what the hell she's talking about. She's using words to try to sound smart. And she's trying to sound smart to sell product. And I can guarantee you that the good Dr. Motes is not driving around in a rusted out 96 Chevy, Chevy Malibu. All right, the description says this as well. It also introduces, and they're talking about letters, the simple view of reading, a research-tested model that holds that skilled reading is the product of two factors, word recognition, dash, decoding the letters on the page, and language comprehension, which allows students to make meaning from the words they read. Sounds simple enough, makes sense, but let's do a little unpackerating. It calls it a research-tested model. In an academic setting, models are demonstrations of how theories work in reality. That's what a model is. And theories are based on many research studies. Theories are used to explain research-based facts and understand phenomena. As such, all theoretical models are, by definition, research-tested. The question to ask is whether the research-tested model is based on a weak theory or a robust theory. But this simple view of reading, upon which letters is based, is a theory that states that skilled reading is a product of decoding the letters on the page which Dr. Mote incorrectly calls word recognition, and listening to the decoding in your head, which she refers to as language comprehension. And is there data to support this weak theory? Absolutely. But it leaves a lot of data unaccounted for. There's more unaccounted for than accounted for data. A much more robust theory is the interactive theory of reading or a neurocognitive model of reading. So, in conclusion, it's fairly clear to see that an approach to reading instruction based on orthography mapping or orthographic mapping is really based on ignorance mapping. And sadly, this ignorance has real-life research-based consequences. The results of this ignorance mapping is the purchase of expensive, code-oriented, one-size-fits-all reading programs. But you, my dear listeners, we want to become responsible consumers of educational research. And in becoming responsible consumers of educational research, we must ask ourselves for questions when Dr. Motes and Emily Hanford and some of these other science of reading zealots and legislative toadies make claims that research has proven these expensive code-oriented one-size-fits-all reading programs to be effective. We must ask ourselves these questions. First, are the results of research showing these code-oriented reading programs are the results persistent. That is, 
do they last after the code-oriented instruction has been discontinued? Two, do the skills learned in these code-oriented reading programs transfer to real-life situations? It's not good enough. It doesn't matter if you can do a skill in a certain situation. You must be able to use that skill in a real-life situation, in the situation in which you're preparing the, the learner to use it. And third, do these code-oriented reading in programs enhance students' ability to create meaning with print? There's a difference between scores on a Dibbles test and creating meaning with print. There's a difference on scores on a Dibbles test and reading. They're not the same. And the fourth question, are these expensive, mind-numbing, code-oriented reading programs more effective than a balanced approach to literacy instruction, which includes reading and talking about good books and writing and sharing students' authentic stories or authentic writing. This has been the Reading Instruction Show. I'm your host, Dr. Andy Johnson. Today we looked at orthographic mapping, which in essence is ignorance mapping.